Hello. Well, we come now to our eighth encounter that uh, people had with Jesus uh, as recorded in the Gospels. And as I look back on the previous seven, I think what an amazing range of people Jesus met up with. He had a couple of uh, manual uh, workers, fishermen. Uh, he had a couple of uh, uh, Pharisees, uh, religious leaders of the day. He had someone with a mental health disorder had somebody who was a government official, uh, there was a woman of uh, doubtful reputation, and today we come in John chapter 9 to an encounter with someone with a chronic disability, the man born blind. Now, it's a most inspiring story, and uh, the dramatised version, I think, is particularly gripping. So uh, what I want to do is to go through a little bit of the background with you before we actually uh, see the dramatised reading from John 9 uh, so that you've got things to look out for and to recognise in terms of uh, its context. It starts with an apparently chance encounter. Uh, there, somewhere in Jerusalem, there is a blind beggar begging for money. Uh, he doesn't approach Jesus and the disciples ask if the blindness was a result of this man's sinfulness um, or whether it was his parents who were responsible. Interesting question, what is the cause of suffering? Is it things we bring upon ourselves? Is it the acts of others? Or is it just endemic in the world in which we lead, live? Well, we're not going to go into that uh, today. But anyway, what happens after that is that unasked, Jesus spits in the dirt and pastes the um, uh, solution onto the man's eyes. In the ancient world there was believed to be a direct link between saliva and healing. Jesus then tells him to go to the pool of Siloam, which is the local source of water in Jerusalem, and wash the mud off. There's no conversation, it's just an instruction, and the man obeys. He goes and he washes in the pool of Siloam, and it says he came back seeing. Well, the transformation is such that uh, his friends and his neighbours hardly recognise him. Is this the same man, they say, and some say it is and some say it isn't. He's clearly a completely different person. And then, uh, for some reason that is not actually stated in the text, he's taken to the Pharisees, the guardians of orthodoxy, so that uh, his healing should be interpreted and understood by those leaders. And the Pharisees inform him that this can't have been an act of God uh, because God only works in certain ways and since the incident happened on the Sabbath uh, when only life and death healing was allowed and when anointing was forbidden and when mixing of spit and mud, which is a form of pottery, if you believe it, uh, these things cannot have been with God's approval and therefore must have been by some other means. Well, the, um, uh, the Pharisees uh, then um, uh, send him away. He's brought back in for a second interrogation. They seem genuinely wanting to get to the source of this, and they bring his parents as well to check that he was indeed born blind. Um, and the man grows in his confidence and his boldness and uh, causes uh, such a stirring amongst the Pharisees by acknowledging what's happened to him and putting it down to the acts of Jesus that he is uh, sent out of the synagogue. He's excommunicated, as it were. 
And hearing this, Jesus seeks the man out and helps him understand the significance of what has happened to him. So now let's immerse ourselves um, in this wonderful story. Uh, it's 41 verses long, so it's longer than we would normally have as a reading, but don't worry about that. Um, uh, the more of Jesus and the less of me is no bad thing, and I promise uh, uh, not to keep us late in this uh, service today. But look out, if you will, for the transformation that takes place in this man from he, the early verses to his encounter with Jesus. I have to tell you, uh, Pam, my wife, who uh, knows most of these um, uh, dramatised versions of the Gospels, uh, treats him as her favourite character, and you'll see why. Favourite, of course, apart from Jesus, who is there as the tops. But let's now watch and listen to the story of John chapter 9. That is such a terrific story. A man totally transformed, his life turned upside down and people around him thrilled to see what's happened to him. Mind you, it only just qualifies for our series on conversations that people had with Jesus. There's 41 verses there, of which only three very short verses contain any dialogue between Jesus and the man who had been blind. And rather like the story that we heard last week about the woman uh, who was caught in adultery, there are probably more questions that are left unanswered than there are answers to be found. Think about this. What is the cause of illness and suffering? It's touched upon, but it's never tackled. What did Jesus heal the man for when he had not asked him to do so and nobody had asked him to do so? Why did Jesus use saliva and dirt? He could have done so, he could have done the healing without any of that rigmarole. Why was he sent to the pool of Siloam to wash? Was that really necessary? Why was there no conversation between the two until it was all over and Jesus sought the man out? And why does this story get such a prominent place in John's Gospel. You know, it's about 5% of all the verses in John's Gospel go into this story. So it's a, a huge issue. Well, there are no definite answers to most of these uh, questions. Some of them are just uh, speculation. We can uh, guess at things, but we can't be sure. And I did promise you that uh, if we had more of Jesus, there'd be less of me. Rather like John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. So I'm not going to tackle those unanswerable questions, except perhaps the last. We'll have a go at that, uh, which is, why is this story in the Gospel with such prominent place? And I want to suggest four possible reasons that there might be. The first is the power of story. The second is the potential of everyone. The third is the potency of faith. And the fourth is the paradox of God. Okay, the first of these, the power of story. Theologically, this chapter is about light and darkness, about seeing what is true and about being blind to what is true. But doctrine, philosophical concepts, don't speak to many people. Stories do. Think of any memorable sermon, if you've got any at all, any memorable sermon that you can still remember 
uh, weeks, months, maybe years after you heard it preached. And it's bound to be, I suggest, it's bound to be the story that then linked to the truth that the story illustrated. I think it was about a year ago that uh, Jeff told us about Turner's Oak um, in Kew Gardens and how this tree in the 1987 storm had been lifted up out of its roots and then dumped back down again. Still standing, but all the roots had been uh, 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 disconnected and how that experience had given new life to the tree rather than um, bringing it to an early end. Um, and the illustration there uh, was that God sometimes does huge things to unsettle us in order for us to grow. And the illustration was of the pandemic, which we're uh, still learning about. But there we are. That's the illustration. And I remember the truth because there was an illustration there. And Jesus recognized the power of story too. It says in Matthew 13 that he never spoke to the crowds without using a story or a parable as we would uh, use the Bible word um, in order to illustrate things. And he took pictures from nature and from encounters and from stories in order to illustrate the truth. It's the theme behind this uh, Lent series that we're being encouraged to engage in. It says... God's story and our story. And of course, the very coming of Jesus is a visual illustration of what God is like. So story is powerful. Uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. And this man was a walking textbook on what God can do to a broken life. So that's the power of story. Next, the potential of everyone. Now just imagine for a moment uh, that you are Jesus and you are looking for people who can communicate your truth uh, to other people. I bet you wouldn't come up with a blind beggar who had had no experience of life, who was probably quite inarticulate and incoherent um, and who had probably had no education because of his blindness. What a hopeless case, a write-off, one of God's uh, Friday afternoon uh, models that never really worked well. But Jesus doesn't see what people see. He doesn't see what people are. He sees what people can be in God's creation plan. Now that's not to say that Jesus actually chose this man because he was a useful means to an end. He didn't choose him as a potential evangelist or a promoter of the Christian gospel. No, he chose him because he had compassion on him. And because he had compassion on him, he wanted him to be healed. Now, you might say, well, no, that's not actually true because it says that uh, Jesus says that the uh, works of God might be displayed in him, that he was going to be um, he was going to be healed. But I think by that what Jesus meant was that by showing him to be fully human in all its power, he would be able to demonstrate what God could do. In a fully human being, you'll find an image of God himself. And that's true of everybody, each individual, not just the ones that are obviously successful people. Okay, so you've got the power of story, you've got the potential of everyone, then we've got the potency of faith. The transformation of the man from blind begging to beaming bravado is a graphic illustration 
of the difference that Jesus can make in anyone's and everyone's life. See how he moves in his description of Jesus uh, through this story. First of all, when he's interrogated, he said, uh, uh, the man called Jesus. Uh, he even had to get his name from what other people had said of him. Then he goes to, he is a prophet, when he was asked for an opinion about him. And then later on in the story, he says, he opened my eyes. And then he moves to, um, God is, uh, that he is from God. And finally, he says to Jesus, Lord, Master, I believe. He had had no training, but he knew what he knew. He didn't know the theology, but he knew that his life had been changed. There's that wonderful phrase when he's challenged, he says, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know about that. Just uh, one thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I can see. It was so transformational that people who knew him of old couldn't be sure that it was the same man. What better advert could there be for what God can do than a man like him? That's the potency of faith. And then we come to the final P, the paradox of God. Well, apologies here. Uh, it's a bit of an odd P, I have to say. I did work really hard at this. Do you know that there are uh, 4,555 uh, uh, nouns beginning with P in the English language and I must say having worked through the first thousand I lost the will to live but there is a reason for using this word paradox about God the paradox of God a paradox is a person or a thing that uh, combines apparently contradictory qualities and here's the truth you see for the Pharisees in this story if God was going to work he was going to do it in a prescribed way that was understandable to them and was consistent with their understanding of Scripture. And working on the Sabbath was not one of them. They had God neatly in a little box and they could understand him and they knew that if X and Y happened, then uh, A and B would be the consequences. So their well-intentioned religious zeal stop them from seeing God at work. They had to close their eyes to God because God had to work in the way that they expected. And so the chapter ends with a neat role reversal. The blind man ends up seeing, in every sense of the word, seeing the truth and seeing physically. And the all-knowing Pharisees are found to be blind. So let's round this off with some questions to ask ourselves and I'm going to ask you three questions and uh, they'll be on the screen afterwards just for a little time of reflection. Um, and you may only want to reflect on one of them, but here are the consequences of those four possible reasons why the story is in the Gospel. Question one, what might you do to make your story, that's to say your daily life, your experience of being a human being, what can you do to make your story more of an illustration of God's story? Has he done things for you 
which are to be shared with others, Christians or not yet Christians, because he's given you that story to proclaim who he is. <clears throat> are there things that you could do which go beyond the expectation of your neighbours and friends, little acts of kindness, which can be an illustration, a story about God's story, your generosity into God's generosity, and people begin to make the link. Question two. Is there someone that you have dismissed or written off as a dead loss who can, by prayer and encouragement, realise their full God-given potential? Just think about the people that you discount. And are they discounted because you have not played your part in praying them into a place which is a better place than they're at at the moment? And thirdly, are you missing out on what God is doing because you've boxed him in? Is your God too small? Are you expecting him to work in a particular way? And if he doesn't work in that way, it can't be him. Do you limit uh, God's goodness to only people who are uh, Christians, your type of Christians? Or can you recognise God at work through the most unlikely sources when justice is held up, or when generosity is given, or when people are empowered to be what they were created to be? Our God is too small, and if we limit him by our own means, then we limit our understanding of all that he's doing for us. So there we are, three questions, and uh, there'll be a little time of reflection on this before uh, Tom takes us through the rest of the service. Farewell.